Hi, and welcome to In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and sitting next to me is Nootropics Depot product specialist, Emil. Hey, everyone. Today, Emil and I are going to be getting into a deep conversation about the red reishi mushroom, also known as Ganoderma lucidum. We're going to talk about reishi and the way that it's grown and cultivated, and we're also going to tell you more about our high ganoderic acid extract, which is a new product that we have recently come out with and a really, really interesting way to make red reishi a part of your daily supplement stack routine for its calming effects, for its mood effects, and much, much more health benefits that we'll get into a little bit later on in the podcast. Before we do that, we are going to start with a segment that we do in every single podcast episode, which is to recap our new product releases. Every month on the In Search of Insight podcast, we tell you about the products that have been released since our last podcast episode dropped. And this month, we have a list of very interesting and exciting products to tell you about, starting with the first one, which is resveratrol capsules. Now, for those of you who are familiar with NAD Plus and our NAD Plus podcast, you might be a little bit familiar with some of these terms that we're about to introduce. But Emil, tell us a little bit more, what is resveratrol and how does it help us with maintaining healthy NAD plus levels? Yeah, resveratrol is a really interesting compound, also a little bit controversial these days, kind of being controversial always. So many, many years ago, there was a research study that came out and, and basically it said, hey, people that are following a Mediterranean diet seem to be living longer. They also seem to be drinking a lot of wine. What's in wine? They did a search in wine. They found this compound called resveratrol. Then resveratrol was hyped up. It was said, this will make you live longer. Look, people on a Mediterranean diet who have a lot of wine in their diet, they live longer. It must be the resveratrol. And this kind of just snowballed. Resveratrol picked up a lot of popularity because of this, but at the time you couldn't really get resveratrol in an isolated form, so people would be drinking a little bit more wine, potentially, to get their resveratrol content, or yeah, that's that would be their primary resveratrol source. The problem with that is there's actually not that much resveratrol in wine, so it's probably just a good marketing tactic for the wine industry to sell more wine and to make it seem like a more health-promoting beverage, which obviously is a bit ridiculous. So, if there isn't really a high amount of resveratrol in wine, does it still have beneficial effects? And the answer to this is yes. Even though you don't get a high amount in wine, the compound found in wine was tested in animal models and in certain human studies, although very strong human evidence is still not totally there, even though it's been researched for a really long time, and this is probably where some of the controversy comes from a little bit too. Especially now that you have David Sinclair, who's one of the most important people when it comes to resveratrol. He's done a lot of research, he's a big proponent of it, and he takes it himself as a supplement. And then you have a few other people in the industry that are all kind of looking at resveratrol and questioning its efficacy. So if you check out our product page for resveratrol, we go into this issue a little bit more in depth. One of the issues is that resveratrol is often seen as an anti-aging, a longevity-promoting agent. While this might be the case, there is some doubt about this now. And because of that doubt, resveratrol is kind of being discounted as not being important. But 
that's not totally the case, even though it, the anti-aging effects might be a little bit questionable, which I actually agree with too, it has some really interesting effects. And as Erica mentioned, it goes great along with NAD plus enhancing supplements. And this is because NAD plus drives a, a class of signaling proteins called sirtuins, and sirtuins need NAD plus to perform their activities. So it makes a lot of sense to combine NAD plus enhancing supplements like NMN or our Opti NAD plus stack with something that upregulates sirtuins. And resveratrol is a really popular example of this and one that David Sinclair likes a lot. And this is what he takes, but at a higher dose. So there's a couple of things going on here. Resveratrol definitely helps increase overall SIRT1 activity. This is a specific sirtuin, and it underlies a lot of the activity of resveratrol, but you have to take a pretty high dose of it, and it's oftentimes underdosed. So starting right at about 500 milligrams is where you want to be, ideally about 1,000 milligrams, and that's where we put our dosage. So we decided after all, to just go for a resveratrol product, I know on Reddit I've seen it, a couple of you guys have said, hey, you're a little bit late to the resveratrol party, which is true. We waited a really long time to release it. We should have maybe released it a little bit earlier, but we wanted to be sure if we were going to release a resveratrol product that the dose was right, that we could source a pure product, not an extract, because with an extract you would have to have a really high dosage, and it seems when we tried some extracts of um, around 20% resveratrol and 50% resveratrol from various plant sources, we had quite a bit of gastrointestinal distress with it, which obviously is not pleasant. We didn't have this with a pure isolated resveratrol, transresveratrol, which is the resveratrol form that you want. So. It did take us a while. We set the dosage really high where it should be. And I think this is one of the first products on the market that has such a high dose of resveratrol. So of course, now you want to know what kind of effects can I expect from a high resveratrol dosage? And acutely, I would say you can feel a little bit of an energizing effect, a bit of that cellular energy effect. One of the effects you kind of associate with NAD plus too, and when you take an NAD plus enhancing supplement together with resveratrol, this effect is a little bit stronger for both. So this is a really nice effect to go for. And I've heard some anecdotal evidence around the office that resveratrol seems to have very good appetite suppressing effects. And this is something our lab director really likes using it for. So that's a really interesting effect. I've also noticed that in terms of alcohol metabolism processing. If I take some resveratrol before having a few drinks, I seem to not have any issues the next day or even during alcohol consumption, which sometimes can be an issue for me. So this is an interesting effect. I'm not totally sure where that's coming from, but it seems to affect alcohol processing for me in some way. Um, it has good inflammation regulating effects, um, good cognition enhancing effects, general good effects on metabolic health, um, on exercise recovery, uh, helps balance oxidation. It's overall a, a really interesting supplement. I take it every once in a while. I don't take it every day, but I really like that acute little boost it can give me. Awesome. It sounds like it has all of the qualities of a 
perfect addition to your daily stack, especially if you are thinking about NAD plus levels and kind of maximizing these benefits. Definitely. Awesome. So let's go on to our next new product. And this one is really fun. Um, this is our super critical CO2 coriander capsules and solution. Now I've tried the solution and I really love the taste of the solution. Um, it's quite powerful. So for those of you who are sensitive to uh, the flavor of coriander, um, for those of you who are not big fans of cilantro, maybe this won't be one that you enjoy as much, but I personally really like taking this as a solution, especially for its relaxation effects. So Emil, will you tell us a little bit more about the supercritical CO2 extract of this coriander and what makes coriander a really exciting new addition to our lineup of relaxation and mood benefiting supplements? Definitely. I'm happy to talk about this one because it happens to actually be one of my favorites. Um, and like Erica said, I actually enjoy the taste too. But I, I will warn you if you're listening to this and you think, "Ooh, I will buy the coriander liquid extract uh, in the dropper bottle solution as something that tastes nice. Maybe reconsider a little bit because like Erica said, it's powerful and I think she underestimated or understated that a little bit. We both tend to like really intense flavors. The coriander supercritical CO2 extract is about as intense as it gets. It's very citrusy, piney, lemony, uh, coriander-like. So it's 25% linalol by weight. So it has a very high content of this monoterpene. And that monoterpene it's almost volatile it kind of tastes almost a little bit spicy and citrusy so keep that in mind with the solution we both like it it's quite interesting it smells wonderful but that's not why you're buying this we're not a essential oils wholesaler we want real effects so with the coriander extract it has a really interesting effects profile i find that it has a bit of a muscle relaxant property which i haven't found in many other supplements it's very calming and it's quite mood boosting and this effects profile while not entirely unique because we have other supplements that do this the way in which coriander does it is very different and i would say for me when i take it it's kind of like i'm sitting on a cloud like it makes my body a little bit lighter it helps with inflammation, it helps with pain, it helps relax my muscles, and it's an interesting, almost fun effect. So I feel like we have very functional, calming supplements, something like lemon balm, which kind of knocks the edge off, but maybe is not that fun. Like, I wouldn't want to take lemon balm and watch a movie or something like that, but with the coriander extract, that's exactly what I would want to use it for. If I just really want to relax and just kick back, I take the coriander extract, but also if I wake up and I'm feeling a little bit on edge, a little bit nervous, then the cor uh, coriander extract can really help knock that down a little bit, smooth it out without making me tired, and I think that's the really fun thing here. Because when I'm watching a movie, I want to be nice and relaxed. I want to have a, a nice mood boost, but I don't want to fall asleep. And that's why we think calming supplements that are also mood boosting, but don't necessarily make you very tired, are an interesting addition to a supplement stack. Where I think 
For me, at least, unwinding at the end of a stressful day is about the most important thing I can do, uh, especially for my cognitive function the next day. So being able to get in that very deep sense of relaxation a little bit later at night is is perfect. Um, Talking just quickly a little bit about the effects profile, it's an NMDA antagonist, it's a GABA agonist, it modulates serotonin levels a little bit here and there too, so... And then it has this muscle relax and calcium modulation effect. So when you combine all of those effects together, you get this really nice, relaxing, physically relaxing, mentally relaxing thing without too much lethargy. Very nice. So what exactly is the reason for this relaxation effect without the sleepiness? What about coriander makes it effective for this purpose? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um... The GABAergic system is very complex. So when we talk about GABA agonists, we usually think, okay, there's one GABA receptor and that's it. When you activate it, you get this relaxation effect. But that's not entirely the case. So you have two distinct, well, you have multiple distinct GABA receptors, but the two we're most familiar with is GABA-A and GABA-B. GABA-B is a little bit more of a simple receptor, but GABA-A is actually a really complex receptor and it's a receptor that's built up of many little subunits. So all of these subunits come together and then you have one big functioning GABA receptor. But depending on where a compounds bind on that receptor complex, on those little subtype receptors, that can really affect the, um, the overall outcome. So, for example, there are certain subunits you activate and it can decrease memory processing. There are others that you can activate and it doesn't affect memory processing. Uh, There are ones that affect mood, relaxation. So, specifically targeting these different subunits can have different effects profiles from um, relaxing effects to cognition modulating effects. There's a lot of different ways in which GABA can be activated and if you look at different GABA activators and different supplements, they will do it in different ways. Um, there's not a whole lot of in-depth research just how these compounds usually bind. Um, like they're not going in with radio ligand uh, linalool and seeing just where it binds just yet. This is a little bit more of an advanced research tool. Maybe we'll, we will see this data in the future, but how linalool binds to the GABA receptor probably does it in this way that maybe for some people it will make them tired but for me it doesn't make me tired I think for Erica does it make you tired no it doesn't make me tired at all so it's probably how it binds to GABA but then also its effects at glutamate its NMDA antagonist effects and its modulation of serotonin and maybe some of the calcium channels so when you take all of that together you get this relaxing not really tiring effect my experience but that being said if you take it before bed you will have an easier time going to sleep so it's maybe not going to make you very tired when you take it during the day but if you take it at night it will knock you down a little bit it will help you relax your mind and your body and it can make it a lot easier to go to sleep so even though we're saying it doesn't make you tired it actually doesn't mean it's not a good sleep supplement because a lot of people have used the coriander extract for that already and it will make a great sleep stack. Very cool. And if anything, it's probably one of those supplements that would be effective to take 
in the morning when you wake up, like you were saying, to help just add some relaxation to your muscles, to your mind, but then also before you go to sleep. So maybe it's something that could be a part of your day, both AM and PM. Awesome. So let's go on to our next new product, which is Cursifit. And I am familiar with Cursetin. This is a supplement that I have taken on a daily basis for a while, but I want to know what is special about Cursifit and what exactly is this supplement doing and how is it going to benefit me for someone who's totally brand new to Cursetin and this particular product. Okay, let's start with Cursetin then. Cursetin is a flavonoid. Uh, You find it actually in a lot of different vegetables. Onions are quite high actually in Cursetin, but Cursetin has bad bioavailability. One good way to overcome this is to just take a high dose. So our normal Cursetin, you have a dosage of 500 milligrams very high dose actually and this overcomes a lot of those bioavailability issues once it's inside of your body it activates AMPK it actually also modulates some of the sirtuin so you will actually find it back in our um, OptiNAD plus stack it's also in the OptiNAD plus stack because it inhibits an enzyme called CD38 CD38 degrades NAD plus so if you inhibit it you can have higher NAD plus levels this is one of the reasons why it's in our OptiNAD plus stack And beyond that, when you take curacetin acutely, it can have a little bit of a stimulating effect, more in like a cellular energy kind of way. It will help get zinc into our cells, which can have good effects on immune function. Overall, it's a really interesting one, but it's a little bit plagued by this bad bioavailability, which of course we have overcome with the appropriate dose. I think this is oftentimes a really good way to just overcome bioavailability issues without getting too advanced, but sometimes we do have the opportunity to get more advanced, and that's where Cursifit comes in. So Cursifit is a phytosome. Um, You might be familiar with what liposomes are. So basically a liposome is a little circle in which you can load your active ingredients. A phytosome is similar to this, but the active ingredient is embedded throughout the structure of this sphere, not just in the inside. So it's loaded all the way throughout, and then you have really small particle size. So that would make a lot of sense as to why it's a lot more bioavailable. Yes, because one thing that controls bioavailability is the particle size. If you have large particle sizes, it can actually be harder to absorb something. So just getting it down to a small particle size will help it absorb a lot better. But in addition to that, this phytosome is composed of uh, phospholipids, so like phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, and these phospholipids kind of encase the curacetin and that will help it pass through cellular membranes a little bit more easily so it will help enhance bioavailability and it will help carry curacetin to where we want it to go and it might even be able to enhance its uh, longevity in our system so it might circulate a little bit longer so this is a really cool one if you want the benefits of curacetin but you want it in a more advanced more highly bioavailable form awesome And it sounds like this could be a good product to combine with resveratrol if you're really trying to maximize and optimize your NAD plus and cellular energy stack. Yeah, if you take resveratrol, cursifit, and maybe NMN, that would be a really solid stack where 
you're increasing NAD plus levels, you're increasing the uh, proteins or enzyme systems that use uh, NAD plus with resveratrol and curacetin, and you're using curacetin to boost NAD plus levels, and then curacetin has all of these benefits, that would be a really nice stack. Something you can probably acutely feel quite a bit too with this cellular energy type stimulating effect. Awesome. Let's move on to our next new product because that was such a great uh, segue. So our next new product that we have to discuss is another kind of optimized product of something that we already carry, uh, which is berberine. But this new product is called Berbivis. And Emil, tell us a little bit about this product and how it might be similar to that Cursifit in terms of the phytosome technology. Yeah, so Berbivis is made by the same manufacturer as Cursifit, and it's using the same phytosome technology. So we already know what that is. So then let's move on to what actually is Berbivis. And Berbivis is a berberine phytosome. And berberine is a really interesting compound. Uh, we've carried it for a long time. You've maybe even taken it before. Berberine is really good for enhancing metabolic health, and it's very famous for this. This is definitely one of its primary attractors for, for taking it. But on the nootropic side, berberine actually has some really interesting effects on norepinephrine and neuroplasticity. So I actually really like berberine for this effects profile. And it's something I can definitely feel a little bit too. It's a little bit stimulating. It's a little bit cognitively enhancing. Uh, and in addition to that, it suppresses appetite a little bit, it helps with metabolic health. So overall, just a really good one to take for daily health, also for these longevity type of effects and then the nootropic effects. And one of the things with berberine similar to curacetin is it has notoriously bad bioavailability. Again, this is why we have high dosages of berberine. We actually also have a stack of berberine and silymarin. Silymarin helps enhance the bioavailability of berberine a little bit and helps synergize some different effects. But here we are enhancing berberine bioavailability with the phytosome, which will help get the berberine to where it needs to go a little bit more efficiently and will maybe allow the berberine to act for a longer time in your body. So this is a really good one if you've ever been interested in berberine and you just want the ultimate berberine bioavailability. Awesome. And if I were to make a little stack suggestion, this would probably be a great product to combine with the supercritical CO2 extract because it has these mood benefits and these cognition benefits, but maybe it's a little bit more on the stimulating side. Um, and adding that alongside of the coriander extract could be a nice way to kind of round out the overall relaxation, mood stimulation, like a great start to your day. Definitely. That actually would be a really good stack. Awesome. So now let's finish with our final new product, which is our Infinity product. And this is going to be a high bioavailability vitamin C stack, which contains a very awesome list of ingredients that Emil is going to tell us a little bit more about and why it's important that we have an optimized, highly bioavailable vitamin C. Yes. So Infinity is one of the first in the Infini line of products that we're going to come out with. So these are optimized vitamin products. Uh, Infinity then, of course, is a high bioavailability blend of different vitamin C compounds. And these ones are calcium ascorbate, magnesium ascorbate, sodium ascorbate, potassium ascorbate, and ascorbyl palmitate. 
Scorbyl palmitate is an ester form of vitamin C. It's really high bioavailability. And then the potassium, sodium, magnesium, and calcium ascorbate also have very high bioavailability and also give you a little bit of potassium, sodium, magnesium, and calcium. But those actually help the vitamin C absorb and it helps stabilize them so they don't get used up too quickly during oxidation regulating activities because vitamin C kind of sacrifices itself. So if it encounters a reactive oxygen species, it oxidizes itself, which neutralizes the reactive oxygen species, but then your vitamin C is gone. Vitamin C being one of the body's main antioxidants, you can take quite a bit of it, and you actually need quite a bit of it, because you constantly need a lot of vitamin C to modulate these oxidation regulation activities. Also, it's just a very essential vitamin, so it's a good one to have around. It's good to have around for immune health, and just one interesting thing too, actually, is it seems to have a bit of a nootropic effect, uh, especially when you combine it with something like agmatine. I think there was kind of a famous stack a few years ago on Reddit where people were combining agmatine and vitamin C, and that seemed to have a really nice mood-boosting effect. Uh, so having something with high bioavailability forms of vitamin C is great if you just want to enhance your vitamin C status, get this nice antioxidant effect, and maybe a nice nootropic effect, mood-boosting effect. Awesome. So that concludes the first segment of the podcast, our new product releases from the last month. Now we are going to jump into the main topic of our podcast for this month, which is red reishi mushroom. Now, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see in the thumbnail this beautiful, naturally growing red reishi mushroom. Today, we're going to talk about how red reishi grows naturally in the forest. We're also going to talk about how reishi is cultivated for extracts and specifically for our ultra-concentrated ganoderic acid extract. So, Emil, before we get too deep into the details of our extract and also into the effects profile of red reishi, tell us a little bit about the history of this mushroom, where it typically grows, and uh, who's been using it for thousands of years. Yeah, so its origin uh, is probably in China. I think it does grow around Southeast Asia. Actually, Ganoderma lucidum and other Ganoderma species grow all over the world, so you can also find them in North America. I actually believe the picture we use is probably a North American Ganoderma or Rishi. Uh, this is partially because of how it's growing on the tree. In China, they actually tend to grow more from fallen logs that have maybe been covered in a little bit of soil, and then a stem grows out, and then from the stem the pileus opens and this becomes the cap. And then you have this mushroom that kind of sticks out of the ground. And if you look at a lot of uh, reishi farms, especially in China, that's how it's usually growing, with this little stem and then the cap. And it seems that a really long time ago, reishi started to be gathered in the wild in China, and it was really hard to actually find it. You have to go deep into the forest, uh, in very remote areas, and then you have to have a really keen eye to spot these little mushrooms that are growing down to the ground. Actually, I think maybe in North America and in Europe, it might be a little bit easier to spot them sometimes if they are growing a little bit higher up on a tree. But how they seem to grow in China, with this stem coming out of the ground and then a cap, 
it can be hard to miss them. They can blend into the forest a little bit, even though they do have a really nice crimson red brilliant color. So if you do find them, I think you would quite quickly spot them if you're really close to them. But getting close to them seems to be hard. So back then, Rishi was basically only for royalty. And because of that, you actually don't see it in a lot of traditional Chinese medicine texts from back in the day because it just wasn't that widely available. And because it was reserved for the royals, you don't really see it popping up in these texts for more common people. But then we started cultivating it. And it seems like we've been cultivating it for quite a while. Um, I believe I saw a study where in 1124, they already saw some monks cultivating uh, or evidence of monks cultivating rishi. So we're getting close to a thousand years at least of documented history of the cultivation. Yes and and that's just cultivation. If you count the wild use of rishi it's been a much longer time at least two thousand years. I've seen some mentions of maybe already three thousand years worth of use with these wild species but of course they were really hard to get a hold of so the use was quite, quite limited but was being used in some of the most important people in society, the royalty. So this is really interesting. And why they were so interested in this mushroom is because it seemed to have longevity promoting effects. And in Japan, actually, it seems to have the nickname of the mushroom of immortality. And within traditional Chinese medicine, it's seen as one of the superior herbs. These are the the herbs that have the the most amount of effects that people want and of the superior herbs it's one of the top ones so within traditional chinese medicine it's really important within china it remains really important and that's the really cool thing about rishi if you look at other mushrooms yeah there's a, a decent amount of research on it like for example if you look at different heritium species to which lion's mane belongs there is quite a bit of research there too likely because it's been used in Japanese traditional medicine quite a bit, but the research on it is still quite lacking, and it's very lacking for a lot of mushroom species for some reason. We're very much still in the infancy of mushroom science, but because reishi has been along, uh, around for such a long time, and because it's so important to traditional Chinese medicine and modern-day China too, there's a lot of research incentives there to, to keep studying uh, Rishi, and there's a lot of research institutes in China looking at how to best cultivate it, selecting strains that are high in ganoderic acid production, um, different extraction methods, different analysis methods. So studying Rishi actually is quite a bit easier than some of the other mushrooms now, because there is this wealth of research and this really long history of use, where it's not necessarily being treated as a mushroom, but it's just being treated as one of the herbs. Very cool. And of course, these days, mushrooms feel like they're everywhere. When I look around on Instagram or in cooking magazines, just out in the world at the farmer's market, it feels like there are new and interesting mushrooms popping up all the time to buy, to eat, to research, to talk about. But knowing that there's more of a history behind Red Rishi also makes this podcast episode a little bit more interesting for all of you to get more of a deep dive into mushroom science. So Emil, I know that you have done a lot of research on Rishi cultivation, but also parsing apart the 
actual physical parts of the reishi mushroom that are producing the most ganoderic acid that led us to create our ultra concentrated ganoderic acid reishi product. So shall we jump into the cultivation and what part of the reishi mushroom actually creates this ganoderic acid that's our active ingredient? Absolutely. And I I will kind of just walk you through the general life cycle of a mushroom. and reishi is very similar. And this will also highlight a few common problems within the mushroom industry. Maybe we will sound like a bit of a broken record because this is being talked about a lot, luckily these days, but we will talk about the mycelium on grain issue because it's quite important to discuss here, especially when we consider ganoderic acid production. So, when a mushroom grows, Uh, especially reishi, it produces a lot of spores. And if you, maybe we can actually flash a picture up on the screen right now. Once reishi matures, it puts out billions of spores and you have this thick coating of spores over the cap of the mushroom. Now these spores can inoculate wood, Um, dead decaying wood, maybe even a live tree, and then the mycelium structure will grow through and then you'll get hyphae and then these hyphae will condense and then a little mushroom comes out, the primordia, and then the fruiting body grows from here. Now, this is how it works in the wild. So you have these spores dispersing and you just have to get really lucky that these spores hit something where there aren't necessarily competitive fungi, competitive microbes that can kill the the mycelial growth And then when you get lucky, boom, you get these Ganoderma lucidum mushrooms. But that's also probably why in the wild they are kind of hard to find, because a lot of things have to go right. Now, if you go into a more artificial setting, what you can do uh, is you can start straight from the spores and inoculate a substrate with it. This could be a wooden log, it could be sawdust, uh, it could be sawdust amended with something like soy hulls, This is pretty common actually in North America, uh, or just grains. And this is for more commercial mushroom production. This is kind of how it's done. So you take spores and you usually will put them on an agar plate. So this is um, a a sort of gelatin-like substance that comes from seaweed. And you can get it to set like a gel. And then on this gel, you can actually grow out mycelium. Usually in this gel, you'll also put some uh, nutrients. So I'm a mushroom grower myself, actually. And for me, I use agar with a little bit of malt extract in it. And this helps give a little bit of nutrition to the, the growing mycelium. So, Have you ever grown reishi mushroom? No, but I plan to actually really soon. Awesome. So spores onto an agar plate, you get mycelial growth. Then you take little chunks of this jelly-like myceliated substance and you will drop it into either a liquid um, substrate and then you can make liquid culture. This is quite commonly done. It's then very easy to inoculate grains with this mycelium and that's usually the next step. And you can go either from an agar plate to this liquid culture and really scale up the amount of mycelium you have, or you can actually go straight from an agar plate into a bag of grains. So most commonly you would use something like corn or rye, millet, all of these different types of grains that you then 
pressure sterilize or steam sterilize or you just have to make sure that pretty much all of the other bacteria, fungi, molds are completely dead and sterilized and then you can inoculate these grains with the mycelium. And the purpose for doing this is to kind of expand the mycelium so that you have a lot more mycelium that is now covering these grains. And because these grains now have a lot of surface area, there's a lot of inoculation points when you actually go to something like a substrate. Um, so this is usually where American mushroom growers these days will stop. Small American mushroom growers are doing a, a great job growing nice fruiting bodies, but some of the bigger companies, for example, Host Defense, they don't go all the way there. So what they do is instead of taking these now myceliated grains and then putting those myceliated grains into an appropriate wood-based substrate, and then you let the wood-based substrate colonize, and then you start fruiting out of this wood-based substrate, this takes a really long time. It takes months. It can take up to a year with Rishi. But growing the mycelium on the grains can take a, a month, maybe three months, depending on how much you let the mycelium colonize the grains. But ideally you would want full colonization, which could take quite a while. Um, but it takes much less long than actually growing the fruiting bodies. So it's pretty obvious why this can be a a bit of a popular solution these days is just skip that really lengthy process and just stop it in that first step where you take your initial spores, you expand those spores into mycelium on an agar plate, then maybe into a liquid culture and then you inoculate the liquid culture or the agar plate into sterilized grains. And then that's just where you stop. So then what you have is you have a bunch of not very optimized mycelium on a bunch of grains. And then these grains are taken, they are usually freeze dried because it's really hard to actually separate the mycelium from the grains, if not impossible. Uh, I've definitely made a lot of grain spawn at home. This is what you call that. And I would see absolutely no way of accurately separating the mycelium from the grains. So I've seen a little bit of your mushroom growing operation, and I was going to say the same thing. It, it seems like it would be a very uh, taxing and not rewarding process to try and remove or separate the two, grain and mycelium. No, it's really dense, and especially actually for Rishi. And there's a really interesting, if you are on uh, Instagram, look up uh, a company called Me and Myco. It's, um, they take Rishi mycelium and they actually inoculate it into different forms to make furniture with it. And wow, that's crazy. I have to look that up now. That's amazing. Yeah, they make uh, flower pots with it, which are really cool. And they make, uh, I think they made completely a chair. So they just had their substrate and then this was in the form of a chair. And then they inoculated the mycelium. I think they used liquid culture, but I'm not entirely sure to then inoculate the substrate. And then the mycelium of the Rishi grew through and connected everything and these mycelial connections are so strong that they actually were able to make a chair where someone could sit on it. And maybe we can actually flash this on the screen here. You can see someone sitting on this completely mycelium colonized chair. And mycelium can be extremely strong, which is why it can hold the weight of an, an entire human being. 
So imagine trying to separate something that strong and tenacious from grains. It's impossible. So what ends up happening is the grains that have been myceliated are dried, usually freeze-dried, and then everything is just ground up together. So then what you end up having, usually, is a bunch of grain and a little bit of mycelium. And the funny thing about the mycelium is this is not a good way in which to grow mycelium. You will likely not produce any of the ganoderic acids. You definitely will produce some of the polysaccharides, some of the beta-glucans, but the compounds that arguably make reishi the most interesting, which are the ganoderic acids, will not be in this mycelium. You can produce ganoderic acids in mycelium, but you have to do it in a very controlled liquid culture setting. And the same thing is true for most other mushrooms. Uh, lion's mane, for example, is a famous one. So arenosine A, for example, it mostly occurs in the mycelium. So a lot of people wrongly think that you can just grow out the mycelium on grains and then do the same process and then have a bunch of arenosine A. This is not the case. And I've actually submitted some grain spawn and a fully colonized substrate block to the lab to try and see if we can extract any arenosines from it. And this doesn't happen. I did, however, recently make some liquid culture, which we confirmed did contain arenosine A, quite a low concentration. It took a lot of effort to make this. You have to be really precise in it. I had a very interesting uh, nutrient broth that had some compounds in there that could stress out the mycelium to make more arenosine A. Similar process for ganoderic acids with uh, ganoderma lucidum mycelium and you have to use similar things. You have to use different metal ions and different temperatures and different time uh, variables to try and actually get a decent amount of ganoderic acids. And it's actually quite tough to do all of this in a liquid medium. The sterilization can be a bit more of a concern, separating it all, making sure you get it at the right time. So when we consider mycelium of mushrooms, it has to be done in a really specific way, and you can't really achieve this by just doing it on grains, as far as we know, and as far as we've seen in the research. So basically, if you're looking for a Rishi product, outside of ours, of course, which I would recommend ours, because ours are lab-tested and they are actually the fruiting bodies, and we'll touch on a few more reasons why ours are very interesting in a second here, but you definitely want to avoid mycelium on grain products because this is just a shortcut. Uh, and if I was uh, making my money growing mushrooms, I definitely would want to do the mycelium on grain too because it would save me potentially six to eight months worth of work and I could potentially sell it for the same amount of money. In fact, I can make a lot more money with it because there's also a bunch of this weight of the grains that are in there. So. It, it's a bit of a shortcut. I really understand why it's being done from a profit perspective, but from an actual effects perspective, from getting good effects for the people taking it, mycelium on grain will not do it for you. So let's move on then from the mycelium on grain and let's go to the fruiting bodies. And before we do that, I just wanted to jump in and say it makes sense that we get different concentrations of active ingredients 
from the mushroom at various stages in its growth, right? In the beginning, there are certain actives that are present in the mycelium that may actually not be active in the fruiting body for certain mushrooms. And then as the mushroom continues to grow and mature and develop, different compounds can be produced. And in past podcast episodes, I've been really fascinated to learn that the um, the harvesting and the drying process for a lot of supplements and even food sources that we're familiar with, that is actually the time when these active compounds are being produced rather than during the growing stage. So at the end of the day, to take a product that is kind of the baby version of the ultimate uh, botanical or mushroom, in this case we're talking about the mycelium, rather than taking the fruiting body, doesn't make as much sense depending on what the active ingredient we're going for is, especially when we know that the longer the mushroom grows and the more careful its cultivation is, the more um, highly concentrated these properties can actually become. And this is what Emil is going to tell us a little bit more about in the context of reishi. Yes. So you definitely want to keep the process going until you actually have fruiting bodies. And if you look at traditional Chinese use, they weren't using mycelium on grain, especially because mycelium on grain is actually a pretty new, modern, artificial, lab-grown method. So this just wasn't done. It wasn't really known how to do this back in the day. And still to this day, a lot of rishi cultivation seems to just come straight from spores, which is actually pretty impressive to me. So... One of the main ways in which it's grown, both in China and Japan actually, is on logs. So when we grow mushrooms in North America, usually what we do, especially as hobby growers, we will take these spores onto agar, mycelium, into liquid culture, more mycelium, and then either agar plate or, myce- or liquid culture mycelium into these sterilized grains. Then you let that colonize. I actually don't know exactly how long that would take for um, Rishi, but I know for Lion's Mane, for example, it can take a month, maybe a little bit longer. But Lion's Mane is a lot quicker growing than Rishi, so I imagine Rishi will take even a little bit longer. Then you take these myceliated grains and you add them usually to a mix of oak Um, sawdust and soy hulls you call this master's mix it's very commonly used by mushroom growers here and then this will take a while for the uh, blend of oak and soy hulls to fully colonize with the mycelium from the grains that can take maybe a month maybe even longer and then you expose the fruiting blocks to the right humidity and um, oxygen and co2 levels and light and then you start getting very slow growth and reishi is potentially one of the slowest growing mushrooms that we consume medicinally a lot of mushrooms for example when i grow lion's mane i can go from nothing so just a fully a colonized block of substrate but nothing actually growing out of it to then seeing the little primordia the tiny little baby lion's mane basically and then to a fully mature lion's mane in two weeks maybe three weeks and then certain other mushrooms like oyster mushrooms that i've grown 
you see them, the little pins pop up, and then three days later you have a harvestable mushroom. So certain mushroom species go really fast, and certain mushroom species go really slow. And Ganoderma lucidum falls into this. It can take six plus months to get fruiting bodies that are completely mature. So this is one way in which it's done in the Western world a little bit more, by hobbyists, in lab settings, um, by bigger mushroom growing operations in the United States and in other parts of the Western world. Usually you go for this master's mix in a plastic bag and you grow it out of there. Now, if you look at China and Japan, where cultivation is happening at a much higher scale and has been happening for a lot longer, what they actually do is they take wooden logs and they seem to steam sterilize them and then you take the wooden logs and you just put spores on them then you cover them up and you let them sit for a while i think two or three months and then the wooden log gets fully covered in mycelium and it's inside of the log it's outside of the log then these logs are transported to outdoor mushroom farms in the original areas in which Rishi was found to grow. So then you take these logs and you actually bury them underneath the soil. The soil helps provide a little bit of moisture to the uh, logs because these mushrooms need a lot of moisture. And then the logs are uh, buried in the soil in these kind of greenhouse-like tents where air can flow through, sunlight penetration is quite limited and humidity is really high and in these mountains and during the uh, time in which it's grown outdoors it's quite hot so these tents are really hot and humid which is a perfect growing environment for rishi but it's grown in a very nature mimicking way so in nature especially in that area of china rishi tends to grow out of fallen trees so Here you have kind of a similar thing. You have these pieces of logs and then those get inoculated and then buried in soil, kind of similar to what happens in nature. And then from here, the mushrooms grow. And you can cultivate much more mushrooms this way. And I actually think you can produce more ganoderic acids this way. And especially looking at some of the ways in which they were grown. Uh, We were looking at some videos, actually. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about watching these cultivated reishi mushrooms grow is that they will produce these little heads, like multiple kind of protrusions from the initial stem of the reishi. But the person who is cultivating and kind of caring for these reishi mushrooms as they grow will cut off the slightly smaller or weaker looking little stem heads so that only a single head and then eventually a cap is grown. And Emil, you have some predictions about what's being done with the um, the waste product. So these little parts of the reishi mushroom that are not being kept and not allowed to grow further um, that we'll talk about in just a second. But basically over time, the stem gets taller, these extra little heads are cut off. So there's just one single Um, stem and then cap that opens up into this really, really beautiful kind of brownish red typical reishi cap that you see even in the thumbnail 
but more specifically in these uh, cultivated mushroom grow operations like we've shown you as well. So the important thing here is that you can have multiple different rishi caps and mushrooms growing out of a single log of wood. But what some of these Chinese farms appear to do is they prune the the weaker looking ones and they just prioritize the strongest looking rishi. So then there's one rishi per log of wood, which means that the rishi can actually suck up a lot more nutrients from the wood. Apparently more precursors maybe for uh, synthesizing ganoderic acids. So cutting off these little baby mushrooms, these primordia, can actually maybe enhance ganoderic acid concentrations in that single big strong rishi cap now that that has plenty of nutrients to grow from but this made me think too chinese people are pretty resourceful and they probably are not throwing away these primordia that they're cutting off so what's happening to those and this made me think and this is completely a theory that i have no credible evidence for so just hear me out on it but don't take it as any sort of uh, This is not an authority on truth. (laughs) Yes. But it did make me think because it's very easy to spot mycelium on grain because you see a lot of alpha-glucans. Alpha-glucans are starches that you would find in these grains and you don't find alpha-glucans in such high concentrations in mushrooms. But if you take these primordia that basically are the mushroom already... You will see beta-glucans and you won't see alpha-glucans. However, it's really early in its growth cycle, so it will not contain ganoderic acids. And there's actually a study that I looked at that was tracking the ganoderic acid concentration over the growth period. And indeed, in these first, the primordia, when they first pop up, there are no ganoderic acids there. It takes at least a week until you start seeing these ganoderic acids popping up after you already have this primordia, this this baby little mushroom. Once you see it, it will take at least another week before ganoderic acid production kicks on. So that makes me think, what is happening to these pruned rishis? Are those being turned into extracts? that are high in beta-glucans. So when you run them through testing equipment, you will see, okay, yeah, they're high in beta-glucans. And because not a whole lot of people are actually testing for ganoderic acids, that would then indicate that it is a high-quality mushroom extract. And we will come back to this with some evidence in a second. Actually, let's look at it now. I think this is important to look at now. So So I'm just going to make a quick prediction and say that if people are utilizing the mycelium, especially in the United States, mycelium on grain as um, a source for creating reishi extracts, then my guess would be that people are definitely using this sort of waste product of the reishi for extracts because the reishi takes a really long time to grow. It's resource and labor intensive. And if it is producing high levels of beta-glucans, Why not use it as an extract, even if it isn't giving us these very significant levels of ganoderic acid? Correct. So I I think that seems pretty likely if, again, if I was a mushroom farmer and I wanted to maximize my profits, but I also wanted to maximize the quality of my reishi, 
and I was pruning the rishis instead of just having them grow more rishi caps and potentially more biomass, but with lower levels of ganoderic acids and some of the other bioactives, then it seems pretty reasonable that you would not just throw away these pruned little primordia, you would actually just turn them into extracts, which will test well for beta-glucans and will have low levels or non-detectable levels of alpha-glucans. Seems pretty self-explanatory to me, actually. So then if we pull up now um, Mr. Ewer Saddam, the owner of Nootropics Depot, he recently posted some red rishi testing that we did on a reddit thread so we will take this uh, chart now and flash it up on the screen so if we look here i know for a fact that some of these are mycelium on grain products so that first one aloha medicinals i'm very certain that this is a mycelium on grain product i think it actually says it on the label and look at the ganoderic acid content zero now a very famous mycelium on grain product, which is Paul Samet's brand, Fungi Perfecti, if you look at their ganoderic acid content, it's also at 0%. Makes total sense, it's mycelium on grain, you're just not giving it enough time to form these ganoderic acids. And it's not being done in a way like with a liquid culture where you have a lot more oxygen delivery to the liquid growth substrate and you're constantly agitating it with a stir bar or an orbital shaker or something like that you're incorporating a lot of oxygen and it seems that you need a lot of this oxygen to produce the ganoderic acid so in a solid substrate like with grains brown rice you just don't have enough oxygen coming in so that's probably not ever going to happen and we can confirm that now by looking at the testing for something that we know 100% is mycelium on grain, the Fungi Perfecti product, contains 0% um, ganoderic acids. But now it gets really interesting. So, as Erica was mentioning earlier, we have this ultra-concentrated red rishi extract that has 9% ganoderic acids, and really this is it seems maybe a little bit mundane, ah, yeah, 9%, whatever, but if you look now at this chart and we look at all of the testing we have done throughout the years, testing our own extracts, testing extracts of competitors, testing extracts that we were considering maybe carrying at some point, the highest we had ever found was right around 1.8%, maybe 2%, but we'd never seen something go very high. And even this this 1.82%, it's extremely rare. We weren't seeing it around a lot. So finding something that was 9% was quite mind-blowing for us. And it got us really excited. But then it also got us really excited to use our neoganoderic acid methods that we developed during this process to test some of our existing Rishi products. And at first, we were very disappointed at our testing values, because if you look at, uh, for example, our 8 to 1 extract, the current powder batch, it had 0.6, yeah, 0.6% ganoderic acids, and then the capsules actually had less than this at 0.445%, and then surprisingly, the 1 to 1, which only is treated with hot water, but it's not really a traditional extract. Uh, so it's not necessarily concentrating anything, it's just changing it a little bit by treating it with hot water. This one actually is really high too at... 0.537%. Um, yes, thanks Erica. You got it. So 
this well we're saying it's high now but when we initially did this testing we were kind of disappointed especially in the eighth one because we thought not it should have been a lot higher or uh, maybe we're really below other people but it also made us think what actually are the average ganoderic acid concentrations what's out there and some other products from from manufacturers so we ran a bunch of extra testing and we ran a bunch of testing on our competitors because we were just curious what is everyone else getting and because these results were so interesting we thought we would share them because now when we reframe our extracts with what we're seeing in the rest of the industry our extracts are actually really high especially in the one-to-one which basically isn't an extract at all is scoring higher than all of the other products we tested which are sometimes extracts sometimes just uh, plain mushroom powder but some of them are extracts so what's going on here if you look um, some of the highest ones we found were from real mushrooms but if you look at what you're getting per dose you're dosing the ganoderic acids in a microgram range whereas with our products, even the, the 1 to 1 and the 8 to 1, you are dosing in the multiple milligram range. So we are so much higher, it, it's not even funny to compare the two. So when you consider this, and you consider how long it takes to grow Rishi, how much knowledge there is on growing Rishi in China, and how we have really prioritized and pushed our mushroom farmers and mushroom extractors to only give us the highest quality stuff because they know we can test so they send us the best stuff they can find because they know we will actually be able to find value in this so this is really interesting that through this testing program we have actually been able to find really high levels of ganoderic acids in these extracts but it does really make you wonder what's going on if we are seeing such high levels of ganoderic acids in our extracts why are all of these other ones so low one of my guesses would be that they are not being grown to full maturity or like what i was saying earlier potentially it's these pruning clippings basically that are being turned into extracts so yes you get all of the beneficial beta-glucans you get the beneficial polysaccharides and we can't discount these because these are responsible for about 50 percent of the effects in rishi you need those beta-glucans you need those polysaccharides but in my opinion the most interesting the most unique to rishi are the ganoderic acids so if you're not getting a whole lot of ganoderic acids in your rishi products then what benefits are you actually getting from it? Because if you look at research on Rishi and you look at all of the beneficial effects, the majority of them are being attributed actually to the ganoderic acids. So they need to be there. They need to be there in a large amount. And we're not seeing that in a lot of Rishi products. So now let's revisit kind of the, the cultivation method. So in China, from what we've seen on a lot of videos, what we've seen from pictures of our mushroom farms that we've worked with is that they're one doing it outdoors in an area that is native to Rishi anyways. So similar minerals in the water. And because we actually know that some of the minerals can stress out the mushroom and then produce more active compounds, a similar strategy I used with my liquid culture, it could really be that the water source in this area of China 
which is quite remote in the mountains and it's very clean water sources, but perhaps with a specific mineral composition is maybe really important to the actual growth of Rishi. It might also be that because they are using local wood that's been chopped down and then they are burying this local wood in soil that's native to that area too, there might be different microbes in that soil, there might be different minerals again in that soil that can help enhance ganoderic acid production. And if we think of the water thing, you might think I'm a little bit crazy, but just consider the history of beer brewing. The best breweries in the world, especially in the early days of beer production, like in the 1800s, big breweries would move their entire operation to better water sources, because the yeasts that you use to ferment beer with react to the different mineral composition in the water. And you get different flavor profiles, different mouthfeels, different textures, different rates of fermentation because of this water. And if you look at brewery tours uh, on maybe the, the craft beer channel on uh, YouTube, you will often see a lot of these breweries mention that their water source is important. So if we consider this maybe terroir water source thing, with Rishi, and we know already that different minerals can actually induce ganoderic acid synthesis, then perhaps this is one of the keys. It depends where it's being grown. And maybe it needs to be grown in these specific areas of China where our Rishi seems to be coming from. For us living in the desert in Phoenix, this idea of having a specific water source to grow any particular plant with a hopeful outcome of an active compound is a little bit foreign because we live in a desert and there isn't a whole lot of rainfall here and we get our water from the Colorado River. So this idea that you might have a local water source is something that we don't really experience very often because we have running water, we don't have a lot of local water, and we live in a desert. But when you think about just the production of food in general around the world, especially like you're saying with uh, even with beer, with wine, the water source, the minerals and the specific nutrients that are being carried through that water, as well as the actual soil and the environments that the plant is growing in all have significant effects on the nutrition, the health of the plant, and then eventually some of the beneficial effects that this plant can have. So we have to think a little bit beyond our industrialized modern world where we have just water from a tap or coming from our fridge and actually think about where this water is coming from and all of the different very, very important elements of it that allow a red reishi mushroom to grow with this super, super high concentration of this active compound that we get to benefit from. And of course, one thing to really mention here, there is nothing magical going on. There is not something in the water, magical fairy dust that makes the mushrooms grow better. It's likely a specific ratio and blend of different minerals that can induce this activity. And if you were to study the water that's being used there, that's being used to irrigate these mushroom growing fields, you can probably replicate this by starting with something like distilled water and then putting a mineral blend in there and then going that route. But we don't really know exactly what's in the uh, water source there. I don't know if it's ever been analyzed, but 
Another really important thing to think of is that the soil microbes actually might be very important too. And there's some new research being looked at for mushroom cultivation, especially agaricus species, just your regular old button mushroom. Because when you think of mushroom production, a lot of the mushrooms we're interested in, lion's mane, reishi, black hoof, chaga, etc., they are being done at very low scales when you compare it to something like a, a button mushroom which is being grown on just an absolutely mind-boggling scale because this is pretty much the only mushroom the majority of us have probably ever eaten, will ever eat, will ever be interested in eating. So you have a lot of production. And within these farms, there's now a lot of research being done on beneficial microorganisms that can actually enhance the speed of growth of these agaricus mushrooms. And it seems with the right microorganism blend, the right bacterial blends, you can actually increase the growth rate of these agaricus mushrooms drastically. And they actually end up producing higher amounts of beneficial polysaccharides. So when you take this into account, and especially that in China, these naturally found logs are being inoculated, buried underneath natural soil and being irrigated with water from a nearby river source, then all of these factors kind of come together. You have this potentially good blend of minerals from the water source and a good blend of microbes from the soil. And when this is coming together, maybe that's when ganoderic acid production is at its highest. And that's pretty cool because when you're using local water sources and you're using local substrate sources, there is less labor involved perhaps in the preparation for growing these mushrooms and maybe a little bit more focus on the growth and maturity process for the mushroom itself because you are actually taking these more natural resources and then you can focus more of the cultivation once the mushroom's actually growing rather than starting from like a mycelium or having to mineralize your water and create this less than ideal substrate source for the reishi to grow on. Yeah, and and that's not saying, of course, that you cannot replicate this in an artificial setting and that you can't grow high-quality mushrooms in a more lab setting like we as hobbyists do as mushroom growers. But it is very interesting to think about that replicating the original growing environment of reishi is maybe beneficial to ganoderic acid production. But what's, I think, more important is just the maturation stage, because... Within traditional Chinese medicine and within China, the way in which reishi is used is not really in a powder or in a capsule. And this is the way in which a lot of traditional Chinese medicine is used. It's just raw, chopped up herbs and you can actually see them and you can actually go to um, a traditional Chinese medicine pharmacy and see the big mushroom caps. And the important thing here is it's very easy to visually detect on a whole reishi mushroom when it is at the proper stage of maturity. So when it first pops out of the ground, out of this, well, out of the log that's buried in soil, the way it looks is it's slightly red at the bottom, then it transitions into orange and it just keeps getting lighter and lighter and lighter, yellow, 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 and then the top is white. And it keeps growing like that. And then once the pileus opens, 
which becomes the cap, then there is a gradient there too, with the outer edges being white, and then yellow, 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 orange, 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 and then red. And as the mushroom matures, it becomes progressively more and more this deep maroon red. And it gets this varnish look. That's actually why one of its nicknames is the varnish conch, because if you just see it out in nature, it kind of looks like someone has varnished this mushroom. It's quite spectacular looking. I actually think it's a little bit more beautiful looking even in the early growth stages when you have this almost tie-dye type of look to it. I would agree. And if you look at different ways of cultivating reishi and growing reishi, um, especially some of the less natural ways where you have these antlers that are growing, the multicolored and multi-kind of pronged antlers of the reishi are really, really cool looking. Absolutely. Um, But if you consider in traditional Chinese medicine what they're looking for, they're looking for a cap that is quite uniform in size, quite big in size, completely maroon red with no white on the edge anymore, and kind of a spiraling uh, texture on it similar to like a what they say a ram's horn or just a horn of, of some sort of animal where it kind of spirals like that. That is the look you are going for, this kidney shape, almost like kidney bean color, this like deep dark maroonish brownish red and then this swirling ram's horn pattern in a particular size and you can only get here when you grow a very mature mushroom which growing it by the log method inoculating the log burying it under the ground it's a lot of labor it's quite a intensive process and it takes about a year from start to finish to actually get the rishi mushroom so it's, it's a really intensive process, and that will definitely drive up the cost too, which um, makes it harder to make a profit off of. So with the skyrocketing demand in mushrooms like Erica mentioned, which really is a new thing for a lot of the Western world, because for the majority of the Western world, we've been a little bit mycophobic, scared of mushrooms. Just think of how many people you know that take the mushrooms off their pizza if they have pizza, or are just scared of mushrooms, period, even though they might like the taste. I honestly will categorize myself as one of these people too. I've always been interested in mushrooms. I always have liked the taste of mushrooms, but they're kind of weird, right? They they grow on cow shit. They grow in weird, damp environments. They grow they, in the dark. They grow in the dark. They're they smell weird, they're a little musky, funky, they, they look different than anything else, but at the same time, they're also a little bit hypnotizing, just seeing them pop up in, in forests and these wild colors and shapes, but we are classically a little bit afraid of mushrooms. So this whole resurgence of interest in mushrooms, I'm honestly not totally sure where that's coming from, but I think we might actually have Paul Stamets to thank for that one. But people are getting very, very interested now. But that also means the demand for exported rishi is skyrocketing, and demand for rishi consumption in China and Japan is already quite high. So this then also means that Maybe it's being done at a more industrialized scale in indoor grow environments, in bigger cities, in factories, doing it more the artificial route rather than out in nature with all of these beneficial microbes and the proper water source, etc., etc. So 
that might be why we're seeing some of these differences. Another thing is during my research, I found that there is a lot of government funding in China for Rishi research. There's a lot of really big Rishi companies out there that are funding a lot of research. And part of this is selecting good cultivars, cultivars that are known to produce higher levels of ganoderic acid. So I think there's a combination of factors. However, I think the main factor to consider here is just age. And I think this can be replicated everywhere. This can be replicated in a lab setting. It can be replicated in a more natural log growing environment, which by the way, this is not only done in China. In Japan, this is also the most common cultivation method. They take aged oak wood uh, logs, they inoculate these, they bury them under the soil in a very similar process. So this is how it's being done in China and Japan, both of which are the highest consumers of Rishi worldwide and have been doing so for a really long time. But I think age. So, and why is age important? Well, age in humans is quite a stressor. So the older we get, the more oxidation we experience, the more inflammation we experience, the more cellular stress we experience, the more cellular apoptosis we experience. And in a very interesting study on actually ganoderic acid production in the mycelium, liquid culture mycelium of Ganoderma lucidum, they found that when they added aspirin, to the mixture, aspirin induced a lot of reactive oxygen species and it caused oxidation in the mycelium. And they saw ganoderic acid production go up, I think over twofold, almost threefold increase. So aspirin can be good for humans and good for Rishi then? Well, it can be bad for humans and bad for Rishi. So the the thing that's happening and in humans too is things like aspirin can increase reactive oxygen species but within this mycelium it can do the same thing and one of the reasons why they decided to look at this is because they were looking at uh, a model of apoptosis in yeast cells so basically yeast cells dying off and when you add aspirin to yeast cells they start to die off and this cell death can actually produce different secondary metabolites within these yeasts. So these researchers thought, hey, maybe we can do the same thing with Rishi mycelium. And it worked. They increased apoptosis, they increased cell death, they increased reactive oxygen species, they increased stress. And this stress translated into higher production of ganoderic acids. That's the part that I was saying was good. Yes. Yeah. But technically it's a bad thing producing a good thing. And, exactly. and it's actually kind of similar if you do think about in our previous conversations about NAD+, how fasting is good for us. Whereas right. in theory, fasting is actually a bad thing because it produces stress. But it's actually the stress that then produces certain signaling cascades, the production of different molecules that then help protect you just more generally. So again, kind of... It, technically a bad thing causing a good thing. Similar with exercise. When we exercise, we're actually damaging our muscles. We're causing little micro tears. And the repair of these micro tears actually makes us stronger, makes us more easily able to adapt to physical stress. So basically these bad, quote unquote, bad things causing stress, then causing the production of the things that we want. For so, sure. And it reminds me of conversations we've had throughout the time that we've been creating the In Search of Insight podcast about the importance of balance 
um, both for just our health in general, but also for the way that a botanical might be grown and that balance and also this idea of good and bad resulting in the opposite good or bad effects is a really common thing in nature and inescapable. Yes. And in this model, they are using mycelium, which will age a lot quicker. So within about eight days, they, that's that's the study period. But when you now consider a actual mushroom that's growing, and especially if it's growing out in the wild and it's being grown without pesticides, etc., the mushroom is undergoing a lot of stress over a period of six months, eight months, however long it will take to grow a fully mature mushroom. So this means that the mushroom is constantly being bombarded with stressors. It's constantly experiencing apoptosis, cell death. It's constantly experiencing high levels of oxidation. It's experiencing high levels of temperature swings. It's experiencing heat. It's experiencing cold. It's experiencing microbes in the soil attacking the mushroom. It's experiencing insects gnawing at the the mushrooms because apparently insects really love rishi. So in organic rishi farms, they have to manually inspect the rishi almost every day to take off insects and pests. But these insects and pests are also inflicting damage to the mushroom over periods of many months. And while this is happening, you can actually maybe increase the production of ganoderic acid. So not only do we then heavily rely on the age of the mushroom, can it actually undergo these levels of stress? But also, what are the environmental stressors? And one of these stressors actually are minerals. So they did studies on zinc. Uh, we've done this in our liquid culture too. We use zinc and some other minerals to actually stress the mycelium out to then produce more of these secondary metabolites. So when we consider all of this, and then we consider lab-grown mushrooms, because when I'm growing mushrooms, I don't want big temperature fluctuations. I don't want big fluctuations in humidity. I want it all to be as consistent and equal as possible because I want to grow a beautiful looking mushroom, not necessarily a highly bioactive mushroom. Of course, I am now interested in that. So I am messing and poking and prodding at my lion's mane a little bit more now. But in a natural outdoor growing environment, there is so much more stress that a mushroom can grow through, and especially over a long period of time. So I think that's potentially why we are seeing such high amounts of ganoderic acids in our rishi, and it's not happening in some of these other products that we tested. That's a pretty long list of factors that would cause our Ren Rishi to have much higher levels of ganoderic acid. And while I want to ask you about what the effects of ganoderic acid are, I know that you've got some more details and a little bit more information that adds on to this very long list already of why our Ren Rishi is going to be producing these different, way more dramatic, way more concentrated effects. Well, I think just the last thing there is, it's probably the age. I think age is going to be the, the main determinant there. And it's going, it's always been the main determinant. So if people are looking for the highest quality uh, rishi in traditional Chinese medicine, they are going for this big, old-looking rishi that's nice and bitter. And 
The bitterness is important to note because the triterpenes are bitter, so the ganoderic acids, these are triterpenes by the way, but the ganoderic acids are very bitter. So if you do have some of our ultra-concentrated red rishi at home, just taste it, it's super bitter. So while it's kind of a bad test, if you do eat some rishi mushroom and it's bitter, then hey, it probably contains a lot of ganoderic acids. But that also is an interesting thing to consider when I say if you eat some red rishi, because you wouldn't just do this, because red rishi is a very woody, dense mushroom that if you try and take a bite out of it, it's really unpleasant. And it just kind of tastes like you're chewing on a like bitter pencil shavings. So, uh, well... It actually does have some interesting flavors, but if you just bite on it like that, it's not very pleasant. And you can imagine that eating something like this straight wouldn't be very bioavailable, and I think this is another thing that happens. So a lot of these compounds are also locked away in this very thick, chitin-rich cell walls. And these cell walls also need to be busted open a little bit to maybe liberate some of these compounds and liberate some of the beta-glucans and make it easier to digest the mushroom. And in traditional Chinese medicine, how this is often done is the mushroom is sliced up fresh, or, well, not fresh, the mushroom is dried in its entirety and then it's cut up into strips. Then these strips are boiled for like two hours. And during this boiling process, a lot of the uh, cell walls break down and get a little bit softer and a lot of the active ingredients can seep into the water and then this decoction is drank. So we have actually replicated this process with our one-to-one rishi. So we just expose it to 80 degrees Celsius water for a few hours and during this process some of the cell walls break down and then maybe this is another reason why we are seeing higher levels of triterpenes because ours is actually going through this process that mimics the traditional consumption of rishi. So if this is the process for our one-to-one, it's almost not an extract and it really mimics the traditional way that rishi would have been uh, processed or drank from a tea, then how does the red rishi ultra-concentrated ganoderic acid process compare? So the ganoderic acids are not very soluble at all in water. So if you do a water extract of them, you actually won't pull over a lot of the ganoderic acids. And we do see high ganoderic acids in the one-to-one hot water processed rishi because everything is still there. We're not discarding anything. So you're getting the full mushroom. Then in the eight-to-one, you're actually combining an ethanol extraction and a water extraction. So you do depending on, of course, the uh, growth of the mushroom. So, for example, in our capsules, we're seeing a little bit less. In our powder, we're seeing a little bit more. This is just down to the different batch. Of course, these are natural things, and because at the manufacturer level, these extracts oftentimes are not being standardized for ganoderic acids. They vary a little bit. In theory, though, the 8 to 1 should always be higher in ganoderic acids because there is alcohol involved in the extraction process, and the ganoderic acids are very soluble in alcohol. So for the ultra-concentrated rishi, we completely bypassed the water extraction and we did an extraction with 100% just ethanol. So by doing this, we very selectively can pull out the highest amount of ganoderic acids. And of course, starting with a high quality material already. So there are a lot of ganoderic acids to actually extract. 
So that actually also brings me to an interesting consideration about the beta-glucans. So we've made a pretty interesting discovery and we're still trying to solve this. So what we've often seen is that in our one-to-one mushroom extracts or hot water processed mushrooms, they are the highest in beta-glucans. But the beta-glucans actually are also both water and ethanol soluble. So why are we not seeing higher levels of beta-glucans often in the extracts? And this is something we've tried to solve for a while now. And it seems like we're getting somewhat close-ish to cracking this problem. But like I talked about earlier, the majority of the mushroom is chitin, this cell wall. But chitin actually is a beta-glucan too. However, chitin can't really be fully consumed. Uh, it, it can be digested. It can be broken apart. So this is part of the reason why we do this hot water processing first, to try and overcome this issue a little bit. But chitin, since it is a beta-glucan, when you test for beta-glucans, it will pop up as a beta-glucan. So in our current testing data for the one-to-one, you see this chitin there. And we haven't found a good way to separate it yet. We just know theoretically that this is going on and we have no idea how to actually separate them with the current testing methods and no one seems to know how to separate them. But chitin is not very useful. So depending on how much chitin is actually taking up the total beta-glucan number when you look at a one-to-one extract and you look at every other mushroom product out there, which usually is just whole ground-up mushrooms, sometimes not even heat-treated. So if you look at these mushrooms, a lot of them are probably really high in chitin. And just to, to stay on neutral ground here, I will say ours is also high in chitin. So how do we solve this problem? We're getting close. But the interesting thing to mention here is that even though the beta-glucan content is lower in, for example, the 8 to 1, which is an extract, the beta-glucans here are all of the beta-glucans you can absorb minus the chitin, because the chitin doesn't make it over, because it's not soluble in water or ethanol. So when you make a mushroom extract, you're actually removing the chitin, which will drop your beta-glucan number, since chitin is a beta-glucan and will influence the beta-glucan levels. So this is an interesting thing to consider, especially for a mushroom like Rishi, which is very high in um, beta-glucans and has a lot of chitin and is a very tough mushroom. So thinking about of, this chitin thing is quite interesting. Absolutely. And it kind of recontextualizes maybe the um, expectations we should have for beta-glucan levels from a reishi extract, because if we now know that chitin is the main source of beta-glucans, then perhaps... Well, it's not the main source, but it is quite a significant source. Okay. Uh, But even being a significant source, if we know that the chitin is a significant source of beta-glucans, but that we can't actually receive those benefits necessarily because we can't break down or metabolize the chitin. Also, just real quick, I realize we have both been saying and wrong it is chitin, not chitin. chitin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then then if we can't actually reap the benefits from the chitin, then maybe we should think about the beta-glucan levels of our reishi extracts a little bit differently because we can't consider this as a part of the effects, like the benefit effects. Yes, and and not just our extracts, everyone else's extracts. Yeah. So just something to be aware of, even though the one-to-one 
theoretically has more beta-glucans. In fact, the 8 to 1, even though the percentage is lower, might actually have more beta-glucans in there that you can actually utilize. So I think now it, it's a bad time to, to get into the effects. So maybe we can start even with the beta-glucans. Yeah, absolutely. So what beneficial effects do beta-glucans have and how does this compare to the effects of ganoderic acid in our red reishi extract? Yeah, so the two are very different, but there are definitely overlapping effects. One of those effects is immune-modulating benefits. And beta-glucans in general have immune-modulating effects. And partially it's because we actually have beta-glucan receptors, and this controls cholesterol processing and also immune function a little bit. And also, the, the beta-glucans aren't necessarily unique to reishi. There are beta-glucans in all mushrooms, but beta-glucans can exist in different forms, so how they are branched, so you can, you've maybe heard 1,3 branch, 1,6 branch beta-glucans, it's just where the different sugar molecules group together and create these change, chains which become the beta-glucans. However, the beta-glucans are somewhat similar between a lot of different mushrooms, and you actually see beta-glucans, for example, in oats. Oats are quite high in beta-glucans, and you see beta-glucans in the cell walls of yeast, so we actually have a functional yeast extract, which is high in beta-glucans. So you see beta-glucans in a lot of different plants and fungi, yeasts, things like that. There are definitely some unique ones in mushrooms, and some of the unique ones in reishi seem to help control cholesterol levels and immune function. So that's the, the one big thing, especially when we're just looking at the beta-glucan content, it will have these beneficial effects. And of course, when we look at some of these competitor numbers, keep in mind that we were just looking at ganoderic acids. We're not looking at the beta-glucan content. The beta-glucan content for a lot of those is probably quite good. So there will definitely be those beta-glucan effects. But as we mentioned, beta-glucans aren't that unique to Rishi. You can find beta-glucans elsewhere. You can find them in yeasts, in oats, in other mushrooms. So. I believe if you actually want to get the full benefits of Rishi, the ganoderic acids are crucial. And we will talk now about why they are crucial, because Rishi has a really interesting calming effect. And we've actually been trying it out, and we took some at the start of this podcast. So Erica, can you explain to me what your experience with it has been and how it has been actually throughout the course of this podcast so far? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say upon first taking the reishi, it, it takes maybe 30... And this is the ultra-concentrated, by the way, the yes. high 9% ganoderic acid. So we can really be sure that what we're talking about is mostly ganoderic acids, very little beta-glucan effects. Yes. So it takes about 30 to 35 minutes for me to st start to feel the benefits and start to feel the effects of this extract. And even so... It is a little bit challenging to put my finger on exactly what those first effects are because this is a very, very calming and very kind of under the radar type of extract. Um, with all of that being said, the most prominent and early sign that this is working and that I'm starting to um, digest this is the calming effect. I feel like 
in general, I have a more kind of open and optimistic mindset. My body feels a little bit more settled. Um, I think in terms of the morning jitters, I feel a little bit less on edge than I normally would, um, especially going into a busy week and, you know, recording, being on for the podcast. So I do feel more settled and I feel like this aspect is a really big mood and cognition benefit in general. Um, As I continue and thinking more into like the 45 minute to an hour mark, I would say that the effects start to get a little bit more physical and like a little bit more muscular. So I feel like the tension that's present in my neck or my shoulders is a little bit more relaxed and it's not bothering me as much. I have an easier time focusing and following along with what's going on in our conversation, uh, but I also don't feel like as much sense of urgency or perhaps I'm not as kind of physically mm, restless as I would be had I not taken the Rishi. Yeah, and that's my experience with it too. And the way I've described it, and I've maybe talked to some of you guys on Reddit or in emails, and how I described the effects profile is that it is calming in a natural way, as if you didn't take anything. So like Erica said, sometimes it can actually be a little bit hard to detect, ooh, what's happening, just because it feels like you produce this effect with meditation or something like that. Yeah, I agree. It's a little bit hard to describe the effects of this extract only because it does feel so natural and it and it feels more of like a glow from within uh, without having to take something extra. Yeah, that's how I experience it. And because there aren't a whole lot of supplements that do this, I think it's a really unique effect. And we're not alone. If you look at traditional uses, it was actually used as something that could help you calm down, something that could help with uh, sleep quality, something that could just bring some more balance back. So this is a really interesting effect. And it's the most pronounced in the ultra-concentrated Rishi. I haven't felt it that strongly. Well, actually, I felt it similarly strongly in our Lycidospore, which is... so. As we talked about earlier, the Rishi actually produces billions of spores, really thick amounts of spores. And these spores actually contain polysaccharides, beta-glucans, and oils inside of it. And these oils are rich in these triterpenes, like the Ganoderic acids. However, it's kind of hard to get the stuff out of the spores. You have to crack them first and... We do this with supercritical CO2 extraction, and then we get all of the stuff out of it. But this is a really expensive process. We might not actually have the lucidospore back anytime soon because of its high price. But the interesting thing there is that the lucidospore is very high in triterpenes and meganoderic acid. So this is the first time I really experienced purely the ganoderic acids because the lucidospore doesn't contain any beta-glucans at all. So, well... A little bit, but the content is quite low. So with just the ganoderic acids, you get this amazing calming effect. And you get that as well in the ultra-concentrated Rishi. And because traditional use dictates that it was used for this purpose, it indicates that these ganoderic acids are really important. And because the ganoderic acids are bitter, and because people are going for the bitter-tasting mushrooms, because they know they want this effect, this really indicates that 
if you don't have the ganoderic acid, you're not going to get any of these effects. So consider that with other mushroom vendors. Why are their ganoderic acid levels so low? And if the ganoderic acid levels are so low, are you actually going to be able to get any of the advertised red reishi effects? And in my opinion, that answer is a resounding no. This is kind of an interesting addition to our conversation about bioassaying and mindfulness that we had last year. Um, when we were talking about how to actually start perceiving the effects of a supplement um, or an extract. And this is something that we talked about and I want to bring up again, which is confirmation bias when we're talking about these effects from the reishi. Because with this ultra-concentrated ganoderic acid uh, reishi, I can sense some effects. It's definitely calming. It's definitely perceptible. There's a difference between you know, the hour before I took it and the hour after I took it. But it is quite subtle. And when we think about the the most likely the absence of ganoderic acids and other red reishi extracts that are on the market, um, it's a bit frustrating because our expectation of this calming effect or that we're doing something good for ourselves or this sort of more general idea about mushrooms and how they benefit our health might be influencing um, our ability to clearly perceive the effects of a given extract, especially with all this information. So the more research we do, the more we know about what these beneficial compounds are actually doing within our bodies and where they're coming from, from the source material, the red reishi in this case, then we can start to be a little bit more critical of our choices when it comes to finding the right extract and the one that's going to have the best effects because we won't be clouded by that confirmation bias or that hope and expectation that this product that we're taking is going to give us all of these you know, uh, revelatory experiences and feelings, and we can actually be a little bit more uh, critical and question, is this effect actually coming from the extract? Can I prove it? Is there is there the lab testing for it? And can I learn any more about it that will help me to tell, is this going to be effective? Or am I taking something and making these effects up in my head or maybe having a little bit more of a placebo effect? Yeah, and, and if we just consider if the mushroom extract really is a fruiting body. The fruiting body will contain the beta-glucans. It will give you all of those beneficial effects, but it's just not a guarantee that will contain the ganoderic acids. Ganoderic acid testing is not that common. There's not a lot of people that can do it. Alchemist labs can do it. I believe there is some testing there that has shown that there there is maybe one other extract on the market that's like 1.8%. I think we are trying to confirm this as we speak too. That would be nice if, if there's at least another one, because it, it gets a little bit awkward sometimes. We It, it puts us in a good light, uh, of course, putting ourselves in this chart and showing you, hey, look, we are significantly higher in ganoderic acids than anyone else on the market. As maybe you are thinking, listening to this, we are sitting there at the office seeing these results and cheering and going, hell yeah, we got the best Rishi on the market. It's actually a very different approach. Every time we get results like this, we go, oh shit, we're really high again. This is going to look weird. Every time we release these results, we are so much higher than everyone else. Why are we so much higher than everyone else? Why is no one else following in our footsteps here? 
why is it not an equal playing field? Why are we constantly at the top? And it's not because we are doing different types of testing on our extracts. We're running them all on the same method, sometimes even on the same day with the same analyst. There is no incentive for us to mess with the testing here because oftentimes we, we have lots of testing like this that you've never ever seen. Lots of testing that you probably will never see because we don't really have a reason to release it. But whenever we release a new product, we test competitors, we test other samples on the market, and we see this time and time again. Of course, our quality control is extremely high. Manufacturers know that we can do this and have in-house testing, and they know we're sticklers about it. They know we are very difficult to work with. Uh, I'm, I definitely don't envy some of our manufacturers that produce products for us because we also very regularly send stuff back that is not up to snuff. And of course, the stuff that's not up to snuff doesn't get destroyed, it gets sold to other companies. So we definitely weed through the extracts to get to these really good extracts, but it's just kind of shocking that not a whole lot of other people seem to be following this trend. And I just wanted to put that out there just in case it's starting to seem a little bit suspicious that we're always coming out on top by such a high margin. It's not because we are doing something dodgy. It really is just by chance and it actually is kind of depressing for us at the office. We want to see higher levels. We want to see more competition. The better and more competitive the market is, the more interesting and innovative it is to produce new products, but we have to consider the kind of order of events that all of this happens to. When we are looking at creating a new product, and in this case, the Red Rishi, sourcing and really narrowing down what is the effect and what is the, the active compound that we want to focus on the most, that's the focus. It's not starting with, ah, what's on the market and let's see how how poorly these other products kind of stack up. Um, we are looking for the product that's going to be the most effective, that's going to be the most pure, that's going to have the most benefits. And then somewhere along here in the process, we want to look at what's out there so that we can make a comparison and basically show you, hey, we've got some good information and some good research that we think you should be aware of. And well, also, and honestly, it's it's not even we're doing it for you. Right. Sorry, you're not special. Sure. We're not doing all of this <laughs> testing for you. We're doing it for ourselves because we want to see. We just want to see how we stack up. And we want to know that if we don't stack up properly, that we need to do better, that we need to step up our game. However, we never have to do this. We're always at the top somehow. And, and of course, we are doing some of the testing for you. You are special. <laughs> we we want you to see this, but it's not that we're doing it as a marketing tool. It's not that we're doing it to convince you that our extract is better. Of course, it has this effect eventually, because how can you not see these numbers and then go, yeah, obviously, Nootropics Depot's Rishi is superior, but this is not our goal. Our goal is to educate you about what is going on out there. And because all of these other companies talk about Oh, Rishi is great for sleep. Well, is it is your Rishi great for sleep? Because the ganoderic acids are important for sleep. So if your product doesn't have the ganoderic acids, you can make those marketing claims, but if it doesn't actually contain the compound that produces those effects, it doesn't matter. It's not going to have that effect. Rishi will have that effect. 
your Rishi extract will not have that effect. Our Rishi extract will have that effect because it actually has high amounts of ganoderic acids. Our normal Rishi extracts will have that effect definitely to a lower degree than our ultra concentrated but all of our Rishis have this ganoderic acid content, and this has always been important for us. We reject batches that don't test high in ganoderic acids, and we've done this for a long time, even before we could actually quantify the amount of ganoderic acid, because there's a difference between quantification, being able to tell you exactly how much there is, that took a long time, but you can definitely, in a more spot test, just test for the presence of these ganoderic acids, maybe on an HBTLC test where you can actually see the band where it should be, we can kind of determine, okay, there are triterpenes present here. So that's always been important to us. But now we can really standardize for it, get these high amounts, push for higher amounts, get more of these classic ganoderic acid type effects. Definitely. And the more information that we have about where these beneficial effects are coming from, the more specific we can get in what outcomes we hope for with our beta testing to determine what is going to be the best source material and how to achieve the most perceptible benefits, especially for something so subtle like Rishi. And this goes for every single product that we make. Yes. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, some of the testing, some of the sourcing, some of the, the responsibility that you have as a company to provide the actual active ingredient in there in significant enough quantities where you will actually be able to benefit from these effects associated with ganoderic acids, let's now revisit some of the other effects. So we talked about this calming effect. We talked about this um, sleep-enhancing effect. So those are two big ones. It's something Rishi has been used for for potentially thousands of years already through its ganoderic acid content. But another good thing about these ganoderic acids is they are quite potent at regulating inflammation. So this is something I noticed. This morning, I had some sore muscles and... When I took the Rishi, I could feel this melting away a little bit. It's not the strongest effect, I have to say. We definitely have some stronger uh, inflammation-regulating compounds that produce a more perceptible pain management effect. But in addition to the calming, mood-boosting properties, the relaxing properties, and then this, this very nice, robust inflammation-regulating effect, it is really nice. So if you are a little bit sore, maybe experiencing a bit of uh, headachey type feelings, but all quite mild, then something like the Rishi is really nice. And I definitely like using it for that purpose, and I definitely like using it in the context of a, a few other pain management type supplements. So that's a really cool effect. So, And we could talk about um, good stack combinations with the red Rishi a little bit later once we get through these main perceptible effects. Definitely. So then in addition to that, which also helps with the pain management effect, is that the ganoderic acids are really good at regulating uh, oxidation and can actually make um, glutathione act a little bit more efficiently. So it's good to stack together with something like glutathione. So you have this inflammation, oxidation regulating effect. Uh, it also has a good effect on metabolic health. It has a good effect on controlling different cholesterol processing. It can actually turn off some of the synthesis of cholesterol, so that can be very beneficial. And for all of these reasons, I have started to take red reishi on a daily basis, and 
I definitely feel like it sort of glues my stack together and I take a lot of different calming supplements. Um, stress management is a really important reason why I take supplements. And I think that red reishi um, adds just an extra level of like physical calm that I don't get from some of my other calming supplements that I really like having a part of my everyday routine. Same. And I actually, one of the reasons why I really like Rishi, and this is also a bit of a controversial thing because the ganoderic acids inhibit an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase. So 5-alpha reductase takes testosterone and it turns testosterone into dihydrotestosterone. It also produces a bunch of different effects. For some reason, we are very obsessed with dihydrotestosterone, and I do get this. Dihydrotestosterone has this big motivation-increasing effect. Isn't dihydrotestosterone also the um, cause for male pattern balding as well, though? Correct. In, in so high levels? If yeah. you have high levels of dihydrotestosterone on your scalp, on the follicles, it can actually cause some hair loss up until actual balding. So a lot of strategies for controlling this hair loss is actually by inhibiting 5-alpha reductase. This can come with a lot of um, nasty side effects too, sometimes if you do it in, in a very strong amount. But with Rishi, while the 5-alpha reductase inhibition is quite profound, um, it doesn't seem to cause some of these classic 5-alpha reductase inhibition negative effects but it will decrease dihydrotestosterone levels, which for a lot of guys out there seems to be a bit of a concerning thing because dihydrotestosterone is more anabolic than testosterone. So potentially if you have higher levels of dihydrotestosterone, you can get stronger, you can have higher levels of muscle growth, um, you will look bigger, but you will also be more aggressive, even more confident. and I actually notice when I am feeling this level of aggression, probably your dihydrogen testosterone levels fluctuate throughout the man month. And sometimes I really get this day where just I'm a little bit annoyed and maybe someone, you know, is being annoying out on the street or something. And you just get these thoughts like, I just want to push this person out of my way kind of want to be aggressive to them. I'm sure a lot of you guys have experienced this, just this irritated, aggressive feeling. And I actually find that Rishi gets rid of this. So maybe part of that is actually because these high dihydrotestosterone levels can actually have some negative effects too. It can, can make you feel a little bit on edge, can make you feel a little bit aggressive. So if this is going on, maybe actually consider some red reishi because it might actually help dampen that down a little bit. And I think this is also part of where that calming effect comes from for me. So if I'm really feeling a little bit riled up, a little bit more aggressive, and I can't necessarily go to the gym or go for a heavy, hard bike ride or something like that, and I'm, you know, at the office behind my computer, and I don't want to turn into one of those internet memes where I'm smacking my keyboard against my desk, then a little bit of red reishi can calm that down. A little bit of like an anti-Hulk kind of situation. Exactly. Nice. So, of course, I can understand that maybe you want to avoid that before like a heavy deadlifting session, a heavy squat session, even some, some benching. Just if you want that aggression, maybe you don't necessarily want to dampen that. But I think oftentimes this is a bit of a 
not a very beneficial effect. So being able to dampen that a little bit, being able to control the hydrotestosterone levels might be a good thing. And it might be a good thing for hair quality. And actually also lower levels of DHT can help facial hair grow more. So that's also an interesting thing to consider. Um, now that we're talking about all of these effects with DHT, I'm also curious what kind of effects would happen if you combined red reishi with Tongat Ali specifically. So because Tongat Ali increases testosterone synthesis and because 5-alpha reductase then transforms testosterone into dihydrotestosterone, if you are blocking the effect or you're blocking the activity of 5-alpha reductase, then potentially you would see lower levels of dihydrotestosterone, which you would normally see if you were to take Tongat Ali, but what you would actually see is higher levels of testosterone because less testosterone is being turned into dihydrotestosterone. So I think the extreme fear of blocking 5-alpha reductase to a certain degree is a little bit silly because even if you do this, even if you have slightly lower dihydrotestosterone levels, your testosterone levels will actually increase a little bit more and testosterone is also anabolic and testosterone has more of that calming motivation confidence effect that you want so if you think about you know roid rage and stuff like that i don't think it's necessarily coming from testosterone it's coming from some of these dihydrotestosterone analogs and stuff like that because that does seem to give you a lot more of that aggressive on top of the world feeling Uh, i've talked to some people who have had pure dihydrotestosterone and this is exactly what they report they report this Um, kind of the limitless pill from the movie effect just on top of the world very egotistical so but also a bit of a short fuse this aggressive feeling so testosterone being maybe the the opposite maybe it's kind of a jackal and hyde situation where testosterone is jackal and the hydrotestosterone is hyde and you know if if you have a little bit too much hyde things can get really messy and crazy you want more of that jackal feeling but you also want a little bit of a combination so i actually think that if you are to combine sustange target at least some of these uh, testosterone enhancing supplements together with rishi you might actually be able to temper some of these more aggressive type of effects which can be beneficial and you can also boost and benefit the activity on testosterone that these other supplements are having just because of the way that the 5-alpha reductase is acting within testosterone. Correct. And another interesting thing to think about is dihydrotestosterone in your prostate is not very good. So a lot of the, the negative effects in your prostate are related to higher levels of dihydrotestosterone. So limiting dihydrotestosterone production in your prostate can also be good. And actually, red reishi has traditionally also been used to enhance prostate health. So this makes sense. And I do definitely agree that complete very hardcore inhibition of 5-alpha reductase is not good because 5-alpha reductase also, for example, makes allopregnenolone, which is a neuronal steroid, which has GABAergic effects, mood-boosting effects, neuroplasticity effects. So if you get rid of 5-alpha reductase altogether, which some things definitely can do, then not only do you have very low levels of dihydrotestosterone, but you could also have low levels of allopregnenolone, which aren't ideal. So I'm definitely not a proponent of that. But 
a little bit of a reduction in 5-alpha reductase activity, which is exactly what Rishi does, I think is beneficial because it has beneficial effects on prostate health, it has beneficial effects on um, hair growth, um, and maybe on mood, on aggression. So I think it's actually a good supplement to take. There is definitely this um, fear that because dihydrotestosterone is also associated with libido and this like sexual aggressive confidence kind of feeling that getting rid of that would drastically drop libido. I take Rishi every day too and I haven't noticed any of that. So for me it it just kind of glues my stack together similar to Erica and has this uh, very nice relax relaxing effect but of course like I still have all of my my manly attributes and stuff like that I'm, I'm not turning into just someone who's you know very afraid and soft and Super not strong passive. and passive that's not happening it's just some of that intensity is a little bit tempered down and that's nice for me Definitely. And I think that when it comes to all of these different testosterone boosting supplements, it is nice to have a supplement like Rishi to add in to kind of balance all of this out. And a lot of these testosterone supplements are quite calming. So it can also kind of um, add and optimize this overall calming effect that you would get and actually be very, very synergistic. So we've already started to get into a conversation about different products to stack with the Red Rishi. But I'm curious, um, aside from the testosterone stacks and support that we just discussed with Sustanch and Tongata Lee and the ultra-concentrated Red Rishi, what would be a great sleep stack to really maximize the benefits that this Red Rishi has on our sleep quality? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I would be inclined to say sleep support, but that's a, a bit of too logical of an option, maybe, because sleep support is already super optimized for enhancing your sleep quality. So adding on top of this red rishi would definitely help even more. But if we're going for a bit more of a simple, maybe a bit more of a budget-friendly stack, you could do something as simple as just the red rishi and our melatonin in the 0.3 milligram amount, the proper amount that you should be taking. If, By the way, if you're taking melatonin in the multi-milligram range, stop doing that. Drop down to 0.3 milligrams. If it's from us or another vendor, I would definitely recommend us though, because we actually test our melatonin. It's hard to ensure that every capsule contains this accurate low amount, but take a lower amount. With that being said, I think for a very gentle, very more science-oriented sleep stack, getting your circadian rhythms to fire properly, and then getting this nice, relaxing, sleep-promoting effect from the Ganoderic Acids and Rishi, I think that's a very nice, simple stack. If you want a little bit more sleep induction, a little bit more of a heavy relaxing effect, I would definitely recommend combining it either with our coriander extract, which will definitely knock you down a little bit more, but still not make you very tired, or something like the lemon balm, which for most people will have a little bit more of a lethargy inducing effect. And actually with that in mind, I do really like our generic um, bacopa extract that has 24% bacocides. This extract definitely is something I can't really take during the day because it makes me quite tired, but I really love taking it at night. It's also one of the reasons why it's in the sleep support stack. So I would say if you want a 
boost up that sleep induction effect a little bit more, but also enhance kind of the neuroplasticity inducing effects that the ganoderic acids can have. Then combining that with the bacopa is a nice stack. Another good one would be the red reishi and oleamide. This is another component that's in our sleep support stack. Oleamide is an endogenous compound that gets released right before we fall asleep and it has cannabinoid, GABA and serotonin effects. So combining that together with the Rishi will definitely have this very nice sleep induction, more tiring, lethargy inducing effect that will help make it easier to get to sleep and stay asleep. Very nice. That's a bunch of really great ideas. So now on the flip side, um, let's think about a good stack for calming and kind of stress support during the daytime because Rishi can also really help kind of calm our mood and ground us a little bit more physically. What would you combine as the ideal? Well, actually, I have an idea just off the top of my head. I started taking Shodan ashwagandha recently after a couple months of not taking it, and I find it to be one of the most powerful and useful calming and stress support supplements. So for me, if I'm thinking about just two products that would go really, really well together and give me a little bit more of a well-rounded calming and kind of mood support for the day, Shodan and the Red Reishi would be a great stack to try. And actually, you were just saying that you're taking Shodan every day, right? Yes. And you were earlier saying you're taking the Reishi every day. Yes. So inadvertently, you've actually been trying this stack out already. For sure. I have to say, though, because I haven't been taking just Shodan and Reishi, only these two together, I can't speak specifically to how just that double stack would go and how that would feel if I were to take everything else out of my stack, then I could really tell you. But right now I've got quite the combination going. But at least it seems like they play nicely together. Oh, absolutely. And I've definitely taken the two together as well. But like Erica said, I actually haven't tried them in isolation, but I'm sure it would be a nice stack and they seem to play nicely together for both of us. So this is a good one. Um, Other calming ideas, stack ideas to combine with the Rishi. The first one that came to mind for me is the saffron. And I've noticed something interesting. Saffron in the 30 milligram dosage for me is so-so. And I've actually noticed that on Reddit, the 30 milligram dosage for people seems to either work really well or cause a little bit more irritability. So recently I started taking 60 milligrams and with 60 milligrams, I'm having much better effects. It's a little bit more calming. It's a little bit more mood boosting. It's a little bit more energizing. And I really like this effects profile where it doesn't make me tired, but it gives me all of these nice, motivating, calming, mood boosting effects. And with the naturalness of the Rishi extract, especially the the high ganoderic acid one, I feel like those will play really nicely together, but I would probably recommend taking the 60 milligram dose of the saffron and then the high ganoderic acid, ultra concentrated ganoderic acid product. I think those two together would make a very almost natural feeling like you had the best night of sleep, you wake up, you're just in a good mood, you're excited for the day, you're not nervous about anything, you're just ready to go out there and get it. I think that would be a really nice stack. Very cool. So at this point, we've covered sleep, we've covered uh, mood and relaxation, we've talked about testosterone. What are other benefits that we might have missed or glossed over with this red reishi 
that would make for good stacks either at the nighttime or during the daytime or for other parts of our health. Yeah, so we haven't talked yet about the cardiovascular system, but this is something that traditionally Rishi was used for. It was used for blood flow. It was used for general cardiovascular effects. And if you look at modern research, this seems to be the case. So, of course, we talked about this a little bit earlier already. Uh, some of the ganoderic acids can inhibit the synthesis of cholesterol. This can be good for overall cardiovascular health. But then, in addition to that, some of the ganoderic acids and some of the polysaccharides actually in red rishi seem to have an effect on platelet aggregation, which can have a beneficial effect on blood flow too. And with that in mind, it also seems to have an effect with nitric oxide, and it seems to have a bit of a vasodilation, blood flow enhancing effect. And I do actually feel like maybe I can notice that a little bit too. Like it seems I have a little bit more blood flow everywhere, which is nice. So in terms of cardiovascular effects, that's good. And if you take into account the oxidation regulating effects too, Oxidation in the cardiovascular system is very destructive, so being able to mitigate this is really good, especially in the context of cholesterol, because cholesterol by itself actually isn't that bad, and of course we know about HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, it's actually not that simple. LDL cholesterol can actually be good too. It's just when LDL cholesterol becomes oxidized, it's particularly bad. When HDL cholesterol becomes oxidized, it's not that bad. It's still not great. So basically one thing you want to always prevent from happening is this LDL and HDL cholesterol from oxidizing. So taking things that regulate oxidation can help with this. So this is obviously why things like vitamin E are also very popular for cardiovascular effects and other oxidation regulating compounds are oftentimes used here because you want to prevent the oxidation of cholesterol. So I think that's definitely where Rishi can shine as well. And as you're talking about uh, these cholesterol benefits that Rishi has, it's making me think about reduced glutathione and that this might be an interesting supplement to combine with reishi for its oxidation regulation effects too. Absolutely. And actually, I read a little tidbit in a study that said that reishi can enhance the antioxidant effects of glutathione in your body. So stacking them together makes a lot of sense. Um, And it can make sense with other oxidation regulating compounds too. For example, the Infinity that we just released, those two could be good too, especially because like we talked about earlier, vitamin C kind of sacrifices itself. So once it encounters a reactive oxygen species, they kind of crash into each other. Vitamin C oxidizes itself. It produces a metabolite. But then once it produces that metabolite, it loses its oxidation regulating or antioxidant effects. We can actually say antioxidants for vitamin C. Woohoo! So in case some of you don't know this, we're actually not allowed to call something an antioxidant unless it has an RDI. So these are the vitamins. So if a vitamin has an oxidation regulating effect, we can actually say it is an antioxidant. So if you're ever a little bit confused why sometimes we switch between calling something an antioxidant when we're talking about vitamin E, vitamin C, etc., or when we're talking about plant compounds that just regulate oxidation, know that the effects are the same, but we just cannot really call it that. Um, for obvious reasons, oxidation stuff is way overblown on in marketing, so I do understand that a little bit, but if you're ever curious about the weird wording, that's why. So, but vitamin C is a direct antioxidant. 
it loses its antioxidant abilities once it has oxidized something and neutralized it. But then when you take it together with something like reishi or even glutathione, where glutathione and reishi can kind of protect the vitamin C from oxidizing too early, then you can actually make sure that there's higher levels of vitamin C everywhere and everything is working nicely together. Very cool. So reishi, vitamin C, glutathione, is there anything else that you would consider adding to optimize the cardiovascular benefits of reishi if we were to make a little stack in this category? Yeah, NARALA could be a good one. Um, Ubiquinol could be a good one, which we'll find in our CoQHCF. CH? CoQH. Ah, I always get messed up. CoQHCF. I believe that's it. Yeah. We, I take uh, CoQSol CF, which is ubiquinone, which is the uh, oxidized form of CoQ10. Ubiquinol is the reduced form, so it has a better capacity to regulate oxidation than ubiquinone. And actually, ubiquinone and ubiquinol switch back and forth in a redox pair. But this is probably getting a little bit too technical now for good oxidation regulating effects within the cardiovascular system, ubiquinol is very highly regarded. So combining reishi with ubiquinol could be a really good stack too. Awesome. And now I'm thinking back to one of our previous podcast episodes as well about andrographis paniculata. And I'm thinking that that could add an additional just super powerful punch in the face to oxidation and inflammation that would benefit our cardiovascular health. Absolutely. And andrographis is definitely a little bit more catered towards reducing inflammation. Uh, It definitely also has an oxidation regulating effect. But you actually bring up an interesting point because andrographis has beneficial effects on respiratory function and so does reishi. So reishi's inflammation regulating effects also seem to center somewhat in the lungs. And actually, there's been some allergens in the air recently and I've been sneezing a lot and I've kind of been having some trouble catching my breath and maybe you heard that earlier in the podcast i i had a few moments where i ran out of air but as the rishi has had more time to kick in i haven't had that issue so it definitely seems to open up my airways a little bit more and some of that inflammation in my lungs because of some of the allergens i've been inhaling outside and indoors i uh, uncovered a really old blanket and i happen to have a dust allergy so i was breathing in some allergens there which kind of upset my my lungs with the reishi that feels a lot better now i feel like i can breathe a little bit deeper so that's a nice effect and that effect i also noticed with andrographis which makes sense because andrographis is famous for its respiratory health promoting effects so combining both the andrographis and the reishi is a really nice effects profile probably for enhancing respiratory function awesome We've really outlined quite a few of the benefits of reishi and given you lots of ideas for ways that you can combine reishi with products you currently have for these little mini stacks and also more reasons to add reishi to your daily spe- to your daily stack, especially if you are like Emil or I and you take upwards of 12 products uh, every day. Yes, it's definitely a nice one to have in there. And I think one of the things I really like about Rishi, if you take it by itself, it has quite a profound effect, but because it feels so natural, it also blends nicely with other supplements and it plays nicely with them. And I haven't really noticed anything where I have negative effects when I combine two things together. So 
I'm a big fan of Rishi. I will definitely keep taking it for a long time. I, I really like all of the effects. Also, the cellular health effects that we can't really talk about are kind of interesting. Um, some of the metabolic effects are interesting. Some of the effects it can have on insulin. So there's definitely a lot there that's very fascinating about Rishi. And I think just paying attention to where are you getting your Rishi, how it's being grown, investigating that a little bit more, digging deeper into why our product is higher in ganoderic acids compared to the rest, and just respecting the fact that this is a mushroom that has been cultivated for over a thousand years maybe, uh, a mushroom that has very significant importance for Japanese people and Chinese people, and was a famous um, thing to take as a royalty in Japan and China for many, many years. It's a really fascinating mushroom. It's a mushroom that we need to respect. It's a mushroom that we need to cultivate properly. It's a mushroom that for cultivation, perhaps we need to really pay attention to the terroir, the traditional growing methods, the just generations worth of knowledge that is there that we can benefit from if we listen to these local people who have been doing this and if we kind of temper our own egos and expectations that we always know how to do something ideally and optimally and we can replicate these wild scenarios in a lab setting. Maybe we can't do that as well as we think, and maybe we do need to revisit some of these old-school, frankly, very complicated growing methods. I, I couldn't imagine growing mushrooms like this, where temperatures are fluctuating, where I don't have a hydrofogger that's producing um, the perfect level of humidity in, in a tent where I have the same light source, I have a very uh, I have the exact spectrum of light that I want. I did it all with research. It's super optimized. But maybe I'm missing some things. Maybe I'm missing the stressors. Maybe I'm missing heat shock. Maybe I'm missing cold shock. Maybe I'm missing the microbes in the soil, the stressful minerals in the water. There's a lot of different factors to consider when we think about what actually creates this concentration and this incredible amount of ganoderic acid. But by this point in the podcast, I hope that you have gathered and understand how important and exciting it is to have a product like this on the market um, so that we can actually reap the benefits of the ganoderic, ganoderic acid, which makes reishi so special. So now we've really arrived at the end of the road for this month's podcast. Um, we've told you about the benefits of reishi. We've talked about the differences and benefits between beta-glucans and ganoderic acid. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the differences between cultivating mushrooms, um, just mycelium, and how important it is to actually get the reishi to a mature state so that we can reap all of the benefits that come from ganoderic acids. Uh, we mentioned the reality that chitin isn't going to be giving us benefits from beta-glucans that are present, and so maybe we have to recalibrate our expectations and ideas about what makes reishi special. And all of that comes together at the end to culminate with this awesome list of stacks and ideas for other supplements and products that you can take alongside reishi to really maximize the calming benefits, the sleep benefits. Uh, the benefits to our cardiovascular and respiratory health, as well as benefits for our testosterone and hormonal profiles, and overall just 
a great calming and mood boosting supplement for every day too. Yeah, it's really started to grow on me, this mushroom. I really like it. And just having seen now hours of video footage of different farms throughout China, in Bhutan, in Malaysia, and just seeing how just mind-blowingly beautiful these mushrooms are. It doesn't look like a mushroom. It's just something completely different. And having tasted Rishi by itself, it doesn't really smell or taste like a mushroom. It's really interesting. I definitely want to play around with it a little bit more. I think it would be interesting to use as a culinary ingredient too. Something we didn't really cover, but it is actually used there too. It's quite bitter, of course, but it's used in soups and things like that. And I can actually imagine that maybe as a, a beer brewer, it would be interesting to put some Rishi in there as one of the bittering agents instead of hops. If you do that, please credit me. <laughs> but I will do it myself someday too. I think that would be really interesting and would make a very interesting beverage idea, maybe in a kombucha or something. But it's a fascinating mushroom. I can't wait to grow it myself. I can't wait uh, to test my patience um, to just sit around for maybe nine months, a year, because I definitely want to do it the traditional log method. Um it's a fascinating mushroom. I hope you learned something about it. I hope maybe there's a bit more respect for the Chinese growers after listening to all of this because they have historically been dragged through the mud by people like Paul Stamets who claim that their mushrooms are high in heavy metals. They're not. We tested and they are high in ganoderic acids and some of these other products are not. So I think that indicates We need to respect where this traditional knowledge came from. We need to respect these multi-generational farmers because they can deliver us products that we can really benefit from. Absolutely. And products that far outperform others on the market and actually have proof of these beneficial compounds, this ganoderic acid that can benefit our health in so many ways. So with all of that being said, thank you so much for listening to the In Search of Insight podcast. You can listen to this podcast on your favorite streaming platforms. And we ask that if you enjoyed the podcast and you learned something, that you share it with your friends. Interact with us on the YouTube comments and on our subreddit. That's r slash Depot, And let us know what your favorite part of this new Red Rishi Ultra Concentrated Ganoderic Acid product is. So without further ado, we'll see you in our next podcast episode. That's all for now. Bye-bye.